Welcome to Charles River Associates Rare Disease Pod Series. My name is Neil Turner and I'm the Director of Marketing for CRA's Life Science Practice. I will be hosting today's webinar on key challenges facing rare disease companies and how the market is evolving in the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm joined today by two Vice Presidents from our Life Sciences Practice at Charles River Associates, Cecile Matthews and Tim Wilston. Cecile's areas of expertise include pricing, reimbursement and market access globally, and she is an expert in rare diseases in her native France. Tim is a pharmaceutical policy expert who has led many projects in Europe, North America and around the world. He regularly speaks at international conferences on issues including market access, the economics of innovation and rare disease policy. So welcome to both of you. And uh, I'd like to kick off by talking generally about the rare disease landscape. Um, what do you believe are the three key challenges keeping our clients in the rare disease space awake at night, specifically in the context of policy and market access? Let's start with you, Tim. Thanks, Neil. So my clients are typically governed at their function within large international biopharmaceutical companies. In terms of, there's a lot of things keeping them uh, awake at night at the moment, as you can imagine. In terms of rare disease policy, I, I would say regulatory change or the risk of regulatory change is probably uh, the number one issue. In the government affairs world, it's a very big issue that the, the commission has published its inception report on how the OMP framework may change. They've set out a set of options that could in include reducing market exclusivity. They could include conditioning on unmet need, they could include changing the threshold for what is an orphan medicinal product. So these are quite big changes. Now, they're not going to happen quickly, slow moving agenda, but could happen in 2022. So that's a big issue is going to be a big task uh, for us uh, this year to, to look at those challenges and, and try and manage and mitigate uh, the risks. The second one, uh, a long held uh, issue of how do we explain medicines pricing? This is always been a tricky issue uh, for the industry, um, but it used to be the case that budgets of orphan medicines meant that this was not high on the policymakers' agenda, even if it was in the media. That's changed. So as we start to think about some of the ramifications of COVID, and I'm sure we'll move on to that in a minute, orphans not going to have quite the, uh, the shield from low budget impact than it's had previously. So orphan medicine pricing and the sustainability uh, of funding uh, a huge issue. And just to add a third, uh, another big issue is there's a huge focus on uh, inequity and access. So why we're not seeing orphan medicines uh, launching in every country in the, uh, the EU, why particularly in CE markets, we've got patients not being offered uh, orphan medicines. That question of equal access and the speed of availability is going to ramp up and become an ever bigger issue uh, in, in this year and going forward. And Cecile, from a uh, market access point of view, what do you think is keeping your clients awake at night? Hi, thanks, Neil. My clients are obviously slightly different to uh, that of Tim's. Uh, they're generally, so in big pharma, it would be a pricing access, sometimes payer evidence role. In smaller companies, startups, sometimes they can have a sort of more medical or commercial function. Um, they come to me with, um, with questions like uh, particularly how to bridge the evidence gap to support uh, HTA valuation and meet uh, those price and access objectives they have. Um, they're facing the issue um, that regulatory trials often uh, lack robustness uh, because of 
small population size, or they're not adapted to uh, the rigidity of uh, HTA processes, right? Um, for example, a single arm trial because uh, you know a lack of comparator on the market uh, uh, that can't demonstrate a comparative clinical benefit, therefore. Rare disease are also often quite heterogeneous. And the second challenge for them is inferring really from the challenges of evidence is the challenge of price. Um, so looking at it uh, from a lens of a manufacturer perspective um, with many payer uncertainties, and I guess this is where it joins a little bit more with what Tim was saying, um, that, that those uncertainties that were stemming from the paucity of, or lack of robustness of the evidence, um, pricing negotiation are likely to be uh, very tough. Um, and you can prepare for negotiation, but that only really goes part of the way. Uh, contracting value-based agreement, they usually seem to be quite attractive, but they're really only part of the solution. So, so generally we need to help uh, our clients look holistically at the whole treatment and, and the place of their product to get to a, a price that reflects the value uh, of the product. Um, whilst staying out of those headlines that Tim uh, was mentioning, uh, because sometimes those prices obviously can be really attractive for manufacturers. And then a new challenge uh, for them that we're starting to see is uh, increasingly uh, rare disease or some rare disease are getting more competitive, right? So that brings a whole new set of challenges that uh, traditional rare disease companies are, are not used to. So these are our three biggest challenge really. How will the COVID-19 pandemic impact the key challenges on the near future for clients in the rare disease space, specifically, again, in the context of policy and market access? But let's start this time with market access, Cecile. Two main challenges that I was discussing, right? Um, so evidence first, uh, and obviously we do expect that not just in rare disease, but throughout there's been uh, uh, major disruptions to evidence collections during 2020 and the beginning of 2021. So what was already a, a challenge for rare disease in, in producing uh, robust evidences for uh, HTA is, is now going to be even tougher. Um, and, and we expect that some, some companies might need to go back to the drawing board. Um, on top of that, um, and Tim already hinted at it, um, pressures on budgets, right, stemming from a global economic downturn, that's all likely to really impact payers' willingness to pay very negatively. Uh, whereas before, uh, payers generally hesitated at refusing reimbursement for a product uh, that uh, was um, fulfilling a very large unmet need. Um, now, uh, we, we're likely to see uh, or there is likely to be a risk that they may refuse or delay reimbursement uh, to buy themselves a little bit more time. So future will tell, but we expect these are the kind of two main areas. And from a policy perspective, Tim? Yeah, just bu building on that theme, really, that Cecile's um, brought up, as well as kind of the impact on individual medicines, I, I think we're anticipating we might see system-wide changes as well. So uh, as we can all see, uh, the amount of spending uh, during the COVID pandemic is going to put pressure on uh, the debt levels of uh, countries that will inevitably lead to some fiscal consolidation at some point. And we're starting to see some early signs of that in different markets. When we see uh, budgetary pressure, obviously that puts a lot of pressure on public spending. Health spending, we're all expecting will be somewhat protected. Uh, one of the lessons of COVID is the need to invest in our healthcare systems. Everyone's talking about resilience at the moment. So healthcare spending is probably going to have some degree of protection uh, from the new round of austerity. 
But that doesn't necessarily mean pharmaceutical spending within healthcare spending will get the same level of protection, especially if there's pressure that we're already seeing to invest in hospitals or invest in nurses and doctors that have worked so hard during the pandemic. So we're very likely to see pressure on pharmaceutical spending. That will lead to a, a set of policy levers that uh, policymakers always look to, uh, industry agreements, clawbacks. These have historically, some of them, have had exemptions for orphan medicines. I'm not sure that's going to be so obvious that that's a, an exemption we can afford this time around. So that's going to be a, a really interesting debate. Secondly, in terms of healthcare priorities, um, we, we've had a long debate over many years as to what we should be investing in. We've obviously over the last decade been moving toward personalized treatment. There's going to be a big argument that we should be thinking more about prevention, vaccines, thinking about areas of wellness, so investing in avoiding uh, cardiovascular disease or mental health. So this will lead to some change in prioritization. That could be a risk for personalized treatment, uh, could be a risk uh, uh, for, for orphan medicines. So there's, there's some real risks there. I suppose there also are some positive things. We've seen real regulatory flexibility. Uh, we've seen a pragmatic partnerships between the industry and payers and governments uh, during the pandemic. And I think people are also taking a very positive lesson of that. So we may see more pragmatism on the regulatory side. We may see more positive partnerships between industry and, and governments coming out of this. So there obviously are some big threats, but there, there are some opportunities as well. I'd like to turn now to the future landscape for rare diseases. And uh, moving forward, what should our clients focus on to be successful in the rare disease space? Let's start with you again, Cecile. Well, again, to succeed, um, manufacturers are going to increasingly need to minimize that payer uncertainty, right? There's two ways pragmatically to go about it. Um, a, investing in evidence. Uh, and when I talk about evidence, it may, I mean it really in the broader sense uh, from uh, regulatory trials, uh, real world evidence, patient registries, you know, investing in characterizing uh, the disease or even the type of patients that uh, they are targeting, uh, particularly if the disease is heterogeneous. Um, and again, importantly, qualifying and quantifying that and me medical need. Uh, the alternative to that will be to find contracting so solutions. So that's more on a case-by-case -case basis as opposed to more industry-wide that uh, Tim was talking about. Uh, but what kind of partnering uh, can, uh, can be done uh, at the national level with the health authorities uh, to find a way to minimize uh, you know, uncertainty with regards to uh, duration uh, of treatment or, um, uh, or, or outcomes. Um, and then the second thing really is, uh, and again, looking at uh, the areas in rare diseases that are more competitive will be about differentiation strategies. Um, so here we're looking at uh, areas that are traditionally, um, uh, you know, addressed in, in less rare disease, but positioning in, in higher and met need areas. Uh, investing in value communication, for example, support from a compelling patient or physician advocacy, that's all going to be needed if you want to play in those areas. And Tim? Yeah, in the, in the policymaking environment, quite a few of those themes carry over that Cecile's been talking about. So uh, having a multi-stakeholder approach, working with different, uh, both physician groups, patient groups, uh, and working with, with payers and policymakers when you can, getting these multi-stakeholder forums uh, to work effectively, uh, I, I think is important. 
so that's one part of it. There's a stakeholder engagement uh, part of it. I think there's a, a, a second part, which is uh, the, the reliance on orphan medicines uh, status uh, is not going to be enough go, going forward. You're, you're going to need a very compelling story. We've always had a, a story around unmet need and the role of patients and evidence. That's going to be even more important going forward. So it, the, the size of the population is going to remain a part of this debate, but also uh, what we're actually achieving for the patient and the, how we need to interpret the evidence that Cecile's been talking about. We need flexibility of evidence, but we also need to interpret it uh, correctly. So I think a part of this debate is really how we explain what we're delivering for patients uh, in orphan medicine. And then the final part, I, I think in terms of thinking about the future, is we've all realized over the last year how big shocks can happen uh, and we should think about scenarios. And so particularly as we're thinking over a three or four or five year time frame, there are options, which I've already referred to earlier on, that the regulatory rules uh, can change. There are also things that can change because of uh, payers working together in different ways. Uh, Cross-country collaborations is something we've seen emerging, taking a bigger role uh, from orphan medicines. And then in Cecile, I referred to it from a pricing strategy, but competition and the degree to which competitors come in in different orphan categories is important when you start to think about the importance of regulatory incentives. So really thinking about scenarios, the therapeutic areas we're developing orphan medicines in, and then thinking how that's likely to change over the next three or to five years. No one has a crystal ball, but what we can do is set out sensible scenarios and then think about the implications from them. Thank you. And staying with you, Tim, uh, based on your recent CRA engagements, what would be your key pieces of wisdom for our rare disease clients focusing on policy and market access? A challenging question. Um, from um, our experience, I suppose particularly thinking about how the orphan medicine incentives can change, I suppose one of the, the things that, especially my, my clients, the government affairs function, the policy function in companies, needs to think a bit more about is the impact on their company. Uh, we've, we've all understand what OMP brings in terms of uh, market exclusivity, in, in terms of the implications for HDA, etc. But why is it important for a particular company working in particular therapy areas? And the, the policy and government affairs guys in companies need to understand that. They need to understand the, their own company's portfolio and how that feeds into different incentives being important. Um, now, obviously, portfolios change and companies change, um, but understanding the importance of market exclusivity, for example, to your company in the therapy areas you're working in is really important. That's something I think we've all gone up some, some learning curves over the last uh, two years doing. Uh, that's an important thing to keep doing uh, in, in, in my mind. And for us to keep saying, why is this particular rule important? Why? Go and talk to the commercial guys and say, does this, does this really matter? And I think not working in a silo and working across functions, like we try to do at CRA, um, is really important. And we should keep doing that in, 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 the, in the world going forward. The second bit, and this is easy to say, harder to do, is to be a bit open-minded as to some of the changes in uh, the environment. Uh, Recognise that policymakers have a lot of concerns some of them are, are, are pretty, they've got some legitimate concerns. Some of them we share from the industry side, share from the patient perspective as well. So the more we can actually say this is a shared problem and the more we can actually say, well, if we've got a shared problem, there are a range of solutions, let's talk about them. 
uh, and be open-minded about their impact. I, I think that has always been true, uh, but it's going to be particularly important over the next two or three years. And Cecile? Well, it, it is a difficult question, although it's provides me with a, a very big opportunity uh, to voice my big bugbear here uh, about, you know, preparing earlier. And it's something that I see quite often, particularly in Cambridge, where I'm based with, with startups and clients that have focused mainly on getting their product to regulatory uh, approval, like it's the end of the journey. Clients still come too late with, with evidence that is a fait accompli, right? Um, and that doesn't answer payers' need. So prepare as early as you can. Those uh, timelines for development in orphan diseases are truncated compared to uh, other therapy areas. So the earlier you prepare, the better the likely outcome. And then the second thing is, you know, leverage what's available. Anything uh, that is already put in place in the various markets, things like early access program, compassionate use program, work with patient advocacy groups, collaborate and try to take advantage of all of these uh, policy items that are made available to you. But again, to finish where Tim uh, also finished, it's about, um, as he said, being open-minded. When all is said and done, be open to solutions, to solutions like contracting to minimize payer uncertainty and go for those win-wins and, and, and some of the way to, um, to acknowledge uh, that payers' concerns are valid. And, and ultimately, to get that product to patients, which, which at the end of the day is what our clients develop those products for uh, in rare diseases. Thank you, Cecile, and thank you, Tim. And thanks to our listeners for joining us today. I'm Neil Turner, and I look forward to hosting you again at the next episode of the CRA RarePod series. For more information about CRA and the life sciences practice at Charles River Associates, please visit www.cra.com and look for the life sciences page. Thank you for listening. Please join us for our next Rare Pod series.
What do you believe are the three key challenges keeping our clients in the rare disease space awake at night, specifically in the context of policy and market access? We would now like to discuss the future of the rare disease landscape and best practices for our clients. How will the COVID-19 pandemic impact the key challenges in the near future for clients in the rare disease space, specifically in the context of policy and market access? Turning to the future landscape, moving forward, what should our clients focus on to be successful in the rare disease space? 